Please turn with me in the Gospel of John to chapter 9. We began last Sunday looking at this passage of the healing of the man born blind. And we left off the story at the end of verse 12, so we'll pick up with verse 13. John chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. 
Some wise person once said to me, Rarely does anything edifying to your soul ever occur after 10 o'clock p.m. Think about that one. Rarely does anything edifying to your soul happen after 10 o'clock at night. I realize I'm speaking to a lot of college students here. I was going through a list. I was looking for some illustrations. And I was going through a list of nocturnal animals, creatures that live at night. And it listed, actually listed college students right before cougar and coyote. <laughs> so I realize that that's not a popular idea. But actually, as I've lived out my life, I can only speak from my own experience. It is definitely generally true that not much good comes after 10 o'clock except sleep. And you think about some of the most obvious dens of iniquity in our culture, places that we associate with sinful activity. You think of places like bars and nightclubs and strip clubs and porno shops and casinos, things that tend, places that tend to be associated with sin. Do you ever notice that none of them have windows? Or if the building they're in used to have windows, they block the windows out. I think that speaks to what the Bible teaches us is true. It alludes to a spiritual reality that was actually spelled out for us by the Lord Jesus Christ back in John chapter 3. He says, beginning in verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This biblical metaphor, the difference between light and darkness, we've seen, we looked at it last week, this is something from the beginning of Scripture, that when we think of physical light and physical darkness, it often in Scripture speaks to a spiritual light and a spiritual darkness that is a conflict that goes on ever since sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. We began looking at this miracle of a man who was born blind, who was given his sight by Jesus Christ, And we said last week that this miracle was a sign that John carefully chooses just a small handful of miracles from all the miracles that Jesus did during his earthly ministry. He chooses just a few and he chooses them because they so clearly represent spiritual truths. They are signs that point to spiritual realities. And we saw that this miracle, the healing of a man born blind, looks back to this great declaration that Jesus Christ makes in the middle of chapter 8, where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He says, I am the one, I am the source of spiritual light in the world. That light represents what is true. It represents the love of God. It represents the kingdom of God. It represents righteousness and holiness and eternal life and fellowship with God. And of course then, biblically speaking, darkness represents the opposite of those things. 
represents sin and ignorance and hatred and lies and suffering and eternal death. Many centuries before Christ came into the world, the prophet Isaiah was sent to prepare the way for the coming of Christ, and he talks about the coming of the Messiah as a dawning of a great light. Listen to Isaiah 60, beginning in verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Earlier in chapter 42 of Isaiah, the prophet says that this one who came bringing the light into the world, would you would know him because he would be uh, identified by the miracles that he did, and particularly this miracle of giving sight to the blind. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning in verse 6. I am the Lord, I have called you. He's speaking to the promised Messiah prophetically I am the Lord I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison those who sit in darkness that is why Christ was sent into the world to give sight to the blind to bring us out of imprisonment and darkness into his light I pointed out last week that Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles did many kinds of miracles by the authority and power given to them by the Lord. But only Christ performed the miracle of giving sight to the blind. That's interesting. That only Christ did the miracle of giving sight to the blind. I think because it was such a clear sign of the purpose of his coming that we would associate that with him as the light of the world. Matter of fact, you notice in the reading, that I just the end of the passage I just read, the beggar himself, the one that was healed, points that out to the Pharisees. He says in verse 32, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. The beggar saw it as a sign that Jesus was the light of the world. The rest of the story that we're going to look at this morning is really about the effect of the light coming into the world as it did over 2,000 years ago. What was the effect of that light coming into the world? And we've already seen, really, in this whole section of the Gospel of John that that light brought division. Division between those who loved the light and were drawn to the light and those who loved the darkness and ran away from the light. And the conflict here at the end of chapter 9 takes place in the context of a trial. In a sense, we would call it an ecclesiastical trial because Israel were the people of God. They were the Old Testament church, so to speak. And each local church, or what they would call a synagogue, the leaders of that synagogue would be responsible, just like elders in our churches today are responsible to receive people into the church and, if necessary, to cast people out of the church, to excommunicate those who live in unrepentant, persistent sin or who teach heresy. And so here you have a trial about potential heresy and sin. And you get the first stage of it here in verse 13 where the Pharisees call into their presence this beggar, this man who was a beggar at the temple who had been healed of his congenital blindness. 
And the fact that only Pharisees are mentioned, that's how we know it was a synagogue level of authority here because it wasn't the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court in the, among the Jewish people, but it was made up of both Pharisees and Sadducees, the two different primary parties in, in, in Israel. Here it only mentions Pharisees, and so that indicates that we're probably dealing with the local synagogue in his neighborhood. And you have the leaders, the Pharisees, who led that synagogue, and they call the beggar in when they've heard all this talk, all this buzz, all this rumble about a man being born blind and being made to see. And what you realize in a hurry is that it's not really the beggar who's on trial here, but it's Jesus Christ who's on trial. John points out right at the beginning that one of the issues they were looking at is they considered Jesus to be a Sabbath breaker. The miracle had taken place, John says, on the Sabbath day. And from what we know of first century Jewish rabbinic teaching, the teaching of the the leaders of that day, they had so many rules that they had added to the rules that they're given in scripture about keeping the Sabbath. They had added so many rules. And from what we know of those rules, Jesus would have broken at least two of them in their minds. He would have, first of all, tried to perform a healing, either to, to, by natural means, uh, this was disallowed, but certainly by miracle it would also fit that category. He had tried to heal someone on the Sabbath, and that was not to be done unless it was a life or death issue. So he's breaking the Sabbath there. Secondly, as we saw last week, he had used his spit and, mud, and dust to make mud and put the mud and caked it on the man's eyes and told him to wash it off. That involved in the mind of these legalistic Pharisees' work. And so he had broken the Sabbath in two, at, least, at least two different ways. And so in their minds, the legalistic Pharisees say he is a Sabbath breaker. And so they bring the beggar in and they say, okay, tell us in your words what happened. And he basically recounts all the details that we read in the first 12 verses. And what's interesting in verse 16, it says this led to a division among them. A division among the Pharisees. There was an internal debate going on. And we actually see this in many of the gospel accounts, that there were some of the Pharisees, some of the Sadducees, that were actually drawn to Christ, that they were intrigued by what he was teaching and what he was doing, and they were open to the possibility that maybe he was from God, maybe even he was the Messiah. But that wasn't the majority opinion by any stretch. The majority opinion was that he was a sinner, that he was a false teacher, a false prophet, and here, a Sabbath breaker. And so you've got this division. Some people say, okay, A true prophet would keep the Sabbath. Jesus does not keep the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is not a true prophet. Certainly not the Messiah. That's a valid argument if you know the rules of logic. That's a valid argument, but it doesn't come to a true conclusion because there's a faulty assumption in there that the pharisaical man-made rules of keeping the Sabbath were God's rules. And so he wasn't a Sabbath breaker in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of of the Pharisees he was, and it led them to the wrong conclusion. The other side of the argument was, well, a true prophet from God would do great and unique miracles. Jesus does true and great miracles and unique miracles. Therefore, Jesus must be from God, maybe even the Messiah. And this is the debate that was going on in the midst of these Pharisees. In verse 17, they turn to the beggar and say, who do you say he is? What's your verdict? on who Jesus Christ is. And he says, he's a prophet. As I mentioned last week, you can see the faith of this beggar growing step by step. Just like our faith, 
as our faith gets challenged, as we have to take a more clear and clearer, clearer stand for who Christ is, then our faith gets stronger. And you see it happening with this beggar. And that brings us to the second stage of the trial where they call in the beggar's parents. And they ask his parents, basically, there's two questions there, but it basically makes up three points they want to get at. First of all, is this your son, this beggar? Secondly, was he really born blind? And thirdly, how did this happen that he now sees if he was born blind? And you notice if you listen carefully to their answers under oath, their answers, they, 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 they affirm the first two. Yes, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind, but then they punt the rest of them. Basically, they kind of throw their son under the bus, don't they? They say, hey, he's of age, which means he's over 13. Ask him. Let him incriminate himself. Now, from what we know of the parents, we don't know for sure that they knew that Jesus had healed him, that they had been aware of it. But really, the whole community, we saw that earlier in the first 12 verses that the whole community the whole neighborhood knew what had happened they were all buzzing about it so they obviously knew about it well John makes it clear the reason why they didn't say they knew how he was healed because John spells it out and it says uh, let's see he says it well, I've lost the verse here 22 is that right yeah well yes that it was because his parents said these things because they feared the Jews For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So they feared, in our terms, and again, this is like a church discipline case. They they feared excommunication. He feared being, and the word there is technically, it's actually a literal word, de-synagogued. They feared being de-synagogued, being put outside the community of faith. And we don't know what that meant in that day. We don't know for sure what the consequences were, but at the very least, it meant that they would have been social outcasts, spiritual outcasts, heretics in the eyes of their neighbors, their family, and separated from all that was important in Jewish life, and especially their spiritual life. So they feared man. They feared what these Pharisees would do to them, totally apart from what may be true. They had a lot of company. Over in John 12, it talks about the effect of Jesus as the light of the world coming into the world. It says this, beginning in verse 40. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's a quote from the prophet Isaiah. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Christ's glory, and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There were many, many people in Jesus' day who didn't just blatantly reject him and turn against him. They were actually drawn to him. They were intrigued by what he was saying. They were totally intrigued by his miracles. But because of the fear of man and a love of the glory that the world and man can give, they didn't give themselves to Christ. They didn't trust him. They rejected the light. That brings us to the third stage of the trial in verse 24. They bring back the beggar for a second round of questioning. And you can see from the beginning they've given up on trying to prove that the the miracle was a fraud or that it didn't happen. Basically, they turn their focus on discrediting Jesus personally. They say to the beggar, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. 
Sounds like groupthink has taken over, that all the dissenters had been quieted. Now they have a consensus among them. He is a sinner. He's a false prophet. He's leading you astray. And you catch the beggar's reply. Beautiful statement of testimony. He says, I'm not sure who Jesus is at this point, basically. All I know is this. is one thing I'm sure of right now. I used to be blind, and now I see. You see, that is a powerful weapon, spiritual weapon in your arsenal as you go to bat against the forces of darkness. It's your testimony of what Christ has done in your life. How he has changed you. Because in the midst of an argument, an argument about theology, an argument about biblical interpretation, there's one thing that somebody else can't deny, and that's your experience. You have experienced the grace of Christ. You have experienced the power of the Spirit and the power of the Word. You've experienced transformation. And that's, what this, that's all that this man has to offer. He wasn't ready to be an evangelist yet. He wasn't equipped to be an evangelist. He didn't know much about Jesus. He couldn't show how Jesus fit Old Testament prophecies to show that he was the Messiah. And he certainly wasn't equipped to debate the intricacies of rabbinical Sabbath-keeping rules. But he did know that for the very first moments in his life, he was able to see the sky. He was able to see trees. He was able to see his family and his friends. He had experienced the power of Jesus Christ. And that was enough to trust him. You know, testifying is not evangelizing. Don't ever mix the two up. Both of them are important in our ministry to the world as you interact with people every day. You've got your testimony and you've got the gospel. The testimony is how you prepare the way to share the gospel. Your testimony is the story of your spiritual journey, of how Christ has come into your life, invaded your life, has transformed you by his grace and led you into the light of what the real, good, abundant life is all about. The gospel is how he did that. The gospel is all about him being the eternal son of God who added to his divine nature a human nature and lived in our midst had lived a perfect life and then offered himself up as a sacrificial lamb to pay the price for our sins. And having paid the price for our sins in full, he died and was raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and offering light and life to all who will put their trust in him. That's the gospel. Your testimony of his, of his transforming grace gives you an opportunity to share the gospel, how others can experience the same thing. The Pharisees respond to his testimony by basically going back to their old questions. They're frustrated. You can tell they're really frustrated at this point in the trial. And they say, how did he open your eyes? They don't even know what to ask. They start repeating the old questions. And so the beggar, I think, if I can say this right, he smells blood, so to speak. I mean, he goes on the offensive. And what's really beautiful is how he, defending the truth, actually becomes sarcastic and taunting i mean here's this beggar the lowest and lows of, of, of the society taking on the religious leaders and he says to them why do you keep asking me these things 
do you want to join me in becoming his disciples? <laughs> well, they're, the Pharisees are totally repulsed by the idea of being Jesus' disciples. He says, you are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses, they say pridefully. And here's where the argument turns from the testimony and the experience that the beggar had to the ultimate issue, the real issue, which is what is truth? Who is the spokesman of truth? Who is the interpreter of truth? Jesus, the beggar, and the Pharisees would have all agreed that God revealed truth to sinful mankind through Moses. Moses was given God's word. But the question is, what about Jesus? Could Jesus be trusted as a faithful interpreter of God's word? Or, so much more than that, as the ultimate revealer of God's word, the one who brought the final word from God that Moses only pointed to. You see, Jesus had already settled this. I don't know if it's the same group of Pharisees or not, but he had made it very clear. If you just turn back for a moment to chapter 5, listen to what Jesus says to his opponents at the end, in the debate at the end of chapter 5. I'll pick up reading in verse 37. This is Jesus' words. He says, And the Father who sent me himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, that's what it came down to. Who is the final word? Christ is the final word. And Moses pointed to Christ. Moses wrote about Christ. All of Scripture points to Christ. You see, the Pharisees said, we can see without Christ. And Christ said to the Pharisees, you are blind without me. You see, the Pharisees were poster children for the ailment or the condition of spiritual blindness. We're all born spiritually blind. As we come into this world, we are blind to the truth. And it's not just that we intellectually can't discern it, but our hearts are corrupted. We don't want the truth. We don't want the God behind the truth. We love the darkness, as it said in John 3, and we fear exposure from the light. We're all born into the world in that state. We love the darkness and we run away from the light because the light exposes us for the sinners that we are. As Paul says in the book of Romans, our foolish hearts are darkened and we are given up to a debased mind and our mind is hostile to God and cannot submit to God. Those are all phrases that Paul gives us in the book of Romans. That darkness twists our thinking so that not only do we not want what is good and holy and right and think the things of God, but we don't even think right around the world. We may be extremely intelligent, but we don't think right about the world because the basic presuppositions for our knowledge are all wrong. 
There is a grid by which we interpret all the data that we encounter every day. And in our natural state, in our lostness, we are unable to interpret either the data from the world or creation or from the society around us or from God's word. We're incapable of interpreting it correctly and seeing how it all points to Christ as the final answer. And it's a disposition, not only just a way of thinking, but it's a, it's, a, it's a disposition we have. I was thinking about this, and it's a very small way. It's a, kind of a bad analogy, but bear with me. I was thinking about this last week when I was watching the uh, press conference where the new football coach for Penn State was introduced. And James Franklin, hit, by everybody's estimation, hit a home run in that conference. And he impressed, he just, as I said last week, he, he just impressed the socks off all of us as a great leader, enthusiasm, and, and a heart and a passion for Penn State. And I've been reading all the responses for a week now, and I actually feel sorry for James Franklin because everybody is so high on him right now. There's only one direction to go from there. He's going to end up disappointing people. He's never going to be able to fulfill all the expectations that people have for him. And I guess I empathize with that because it's in a very small way, it's similar for a pastor, that when you are brought into a church, you're brought in as, the new, as a new leader in the church, and people, they have a, an emotional and intellectual uh, stake in it. They've invested themselves in choosing just the right guy to lead this work, and so in in pastoral circles we call this the honeymoon period where everybody looks at you and they they want you to prove their trust you haven't earned their trust yet but they have put trust in you to lead the work and so they want to see everything you do in the most positive light and so what I've experienced in that first year or so of ministry is that every little success you have gets magnified and you get lots of credit and lots of kudos for all the little successes and all the little failures and things you do wrong and foibles about your life and ministry, they get downplayed or ignored or, you know, and that's the way it goes for the first year, and it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy that first year. (laughs) But inevitably, you stick around in the second year, in the third year, in the fifth year, in the sixth year, hopefully, and, and you're still around, and all of a sudden, people start to see more and more of your failures, and it starts to shift, and you lose that honeymoon period, and things become more real. But in the worst cases... In the worst cases, and I've seen some gut-wrenchingly difficult cases where it shifts to the point where people don't trust the pastor anymore. And then it's exactly the opposite, and I've seen many ministries destroyed by this because it becomes the exact opposite. All the little successes get ignored and disregarded and downplayed, and all the failures and mistakes get magnified, and the ministry gets destroyed. And I say all this to say, this is the state that we're born into. This spiritual blindness we're born into towards Christ. We have that nature that won't trust him. A nature that looks to disprove his claims to be who he is. A nature that denies the gospel. We're incapable of trusting him until he changes us. You know, that, that hostility to truth, that hostility to Christ is not a static thing either. What the Bible teaches is that it gets more and more intense the more we allow it to linger in our lives. We go dark, deeper and deeper into the darkness and farther and farther away from the light. 
This is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a little earlier than usual, so maybe you didn't realize that, but this is Sanctity of Human, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's the day every year that the church grieves over the sin of abortion in our country, in our society. And I was reminded, when I was thinking about the darkness that we live in the midst of, I was thinking about an article that Russell Moore, the Southern Baptist leader, wrote about a year ago, where he said, Why I Hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. That title, of course, caught my attention. And so I read the article and he says, I don't hate Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I think it's somehow unbiblical. No, no, indeed, the entire canon of Scripture throbs with God's commitment to the fatherless and to the widows, his wrath at the shedding of innocent blood. I don't hate it because I think it's inappropriate. I hate the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday because I'm reminded that we have to say things to one another that human beings shouldn't have to say. Mothers shouldn't kill their children. Fathers shouldn't abandon their babies. No human life is worthless, regardless of skin color, age, disability, or economic status. The very fact that these things must be proclaimed is a reminder of the horrors of this present darkness. The darkness only gets darker apart from the grace of God, unless God intervenes. And that was where you and I were before Christ brought the light of his gospel into our lives. You know, the final verdict in the beggar's trial is found in verse 34. First of all, they attack his character. That's, if you know the laws of logic, it's an ad hominem attack. They, attack, they couldn't win the argument with him, so they attack his character. They say, you were born in utter sin. And then they cast him out. They desynagogued him. They excommunicated him. So early in his faith, already he faces great persecution. But we're going to look next week at chapter 10. And there we're going to see Christ portrayed as the good shepherd. And here is is such a vivid example of him being that good shepherd. Here is a lost sheep, one of his sheep, beaten up, persecuted. And he goes out and it says he finds him. He pursues him. He finds him. And he reveals who he is to him more clearly. He leads him to confess faith in him as the son of man and the Messiah. And it says the beggar fell at his feet and worshipped him. He was cast out of the false church, embraced by Christ into the true and eternal church. John Calvin made the interesting comment in his commentary saying there was an act of grace that he was cast out. It was persecution from the world, but it was an act of God's grace that he was cast out of the false church because then he could be brought into the true church and he would be delivered from the pressure to conform to the falsehoods and the lies of what he'd been brought up in. The cure for spiritual blindness is what theologically we call regeneration. Scripture calls it a new heart, being made a new creature. It's a sovereign work of grace, something that God must do to you before you can even see the truth, let alone pursue the truth. The Apostle Paul is such a vivid example of the miracle of regeneration, the miracle of having spiritual eyesight given to somebody who's born blind. Paul is such a great example because he, by his own definition, was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. He bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, and he taught Phariseeism. He thought he saw clearly. 
but Jesus Christ blinded him by the light, literally. In the midst of his rebellion, in the midst of going to kill Christians, Jesus Christ shone his light upon him and blinded him physically so that he would be rendered in a broken and helpless state so that he would see his spiritual blindness without Christ and then turn to Christ to see spiritually. And Jesus gave him his physical eyesight back, but much more importantly, he gave him the ability to see the glory of Christ, the truth of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. And that's why Paul could say, everything I had before as a Pharisee of Pharisees is rubbish compared to knowing Jesus Christ and having righteousness through him. Jesus says in verse 39, this is the purpose of his coming. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That's happening all across the face of this planet this morning. The light of Christ is being proclaimed by word and deed, by faithful, born-again, regenerated worshipers of Jesus Christ. And it's having a profound, divisive effect everywhere, maybe even in this room. How does the light of Christ affect you? Does it make you hostile? Does it make you want to run away, go the other direction? Does it make you angry? Does it make you uncomfortable, like the Pharisees? Or maybe you're in that middle quote-unquote, middle category, where you're intrigued. You kind of like to hear about Christ. You like the things of the church. You're, you're kind of drawn to it, but you won't trust in Christ. You won't give your life to him. You won't become his disciple because you fear man and you love the glory that the world and man can give to you. It's keeping you from Christ. If you allow that fear to keep you from Christ, you will end up in the same place of spiritual darkness forever that the Pharisees ended up. Or does the light of Christ, as it's proclaimed, as it lives out before you, does it draw you to him? Does it make you want to be at the feet of Christ, to hear his teaching and to worship him and to be with him for eternity? That's a genuine work of the Spirit. That's a sovereign work of grace. It's what all of us need if we ever want to know real life and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the light of Christ. We have experienced it through your word and through your spirit. May we walk in that light, and may we bear that light before others, that they might come to know the life and truth and light that is in him. Thank you for Jesus Christ and for his transforming grace for our new hearts and for our eyes that see and give glory to Christ. In his name we pray, amen.